Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. My name is Mike Joseph, and I thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear. If you do, I humbly ask that you leave us a rating or a comment on whichever platform you are using to listen. Additionally, feel free to subscribe and follow me on social media, DetoxPodGuy on Instagram and TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. If you'd like to offer feedback, suggest a guest, or be a guest yourself, reach out to me on socials or via email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. I also want to take this opportunity to wish a happy Pride Month to all of the folks out there who identify as LGBTQIA+. A few episodes ago, in the name of changing things up a bit, I went from being the interviewer to being the interviewee. That particular show got some of the best feedback we've gotten so far. So... Because I have no shame in flogging a dead horse, I'm subjecting myself to the interview process once again. This time my interviewer is Dr. Mike Friedman, who was the guest on the very first episode of Detoxicity a bit over a year ago. Dr. Mike is a practicing psychiatrist who also hosts a podcast called Hardcore Humanism, in which he has interviewed many of my favorite musicians about mental health. We talk about how masculinity has been challenged over the years through athletics, and I discuss my own competitive nature and how I feel it's been both a blessing and a curse. We also go in-depth about outsider syndrome and privilege and how folks go down the path of self-awareness or not. If you ever wanted to know what a therapy session of mine sounds like, only with the therapist being an actual friend of mine, here's me and Dr. Mike. Dude, how you been? I've been all right, man. It's been, as you know, an an interesting 14, 15 months since you and I saw each other in person (laughs) for the last time. So I'm just kind of hanging in there trying to uh, figure out what my post-COVID life is going to be. Ooh. Yeah. Are we going to get, you want to get into that in the in the podcast? That's existential. Oh, I mean, we can talk about whatever you want to, what you want to talk about. Like you're, you, you're, you are a seasoned interviewer, Dr. Mike. Exactly. <laughs> but but the, the, the thing I guess is for me, if you wanted to plant something in the heads of the listeners, what is the part of your story that you feel like it'll be a win if we get into? I think just kind of knowing about me and why I why I do this, like why this topic, this yeah. well, you know, why this podcast, this topic. We talk about like concepts of masculinity and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, masculinity, mental health. You know, I mean, that all sort of ties in together anyway. So I think that 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 would be a good topic, and you know, we can just roll with that. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get right to it. Yeah. What are what are your earliest recollections of the concept of manhood or masculinity? You started right off with a hard question. I don't I you don't know, really... you know, Mike, when it comes when it comes to you and me, there's there's no reason. You don't need a warm-up. Yeah, there, need, there's uh, no warm-up necessary. We, we live on the edge, so That's we're right. right there all the time. That's a good question, man. I I don't remember. I I remember, you know, there are boys and there are girls and you know your granddad and and your uncles and you know those are boys and they do boy things. They fix cars and they fix things around the house and you know the girls kind of are nurturing and they you know, cook and clean and do that kind of stuff. And those are the gender roles that I, I remember from like, an, from, from early childhood, but I don't remember ever really getting as a kid anyway, any like 
solid education on what masculinity was. I knew what it wasn't, but I don't know if I knew what it was. It's interesting that concept of the absence of nurturing and then the absence of education on the topic. You know, you're talking right there about the beginnings of toxic masculinity. Sure. Like, I think that if you asked a lot of guys, I don't know if everybody, and I, I hope that this trend hasn't continued, you know, like our generation versus others. But I think that you would probably get a lot of similar responses where it's not necessarily not nurturing specifically, but there's this definitive understanding that the term nurturing and the term male don't go together. Yeah. I mean, it was, for me, it was, the, the messaging was a lot of don't be feminine more than be masculine. It was, you can't wear this. You can't do this. You can't, don't cry. Don't, there was the not being sensitive, you know, just kind of like the toughen up the be tough thing was, was pretty big. It's such an odd concept to me, just because one, there's such a wide acceptance of crying in certain situations. For example, it's my understanding that at least I saw one video of Mike Tyson crying before one of his fights. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, Clark Gillies of the Islanders, who certainly, if you looked up stereotypical manly man in the dictionary would, would, would qualify, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the enforcer, tough guy, you know, great player for the Islanders for all their Stanley Cups would throw up before court by his own admission would throw up before playing the Bruins and having to fight Terry O'Reilly. And there's, there's countless other examples, you know, you're allowed to cry if you lose a championship, things like that. And so there's all these places where you're in theory allowed to cry and yet you're not allowed to cry. It's just such a, it's such an odd concept because we watch all these supposed alpha males. I don't say supposed meaning I don't think they are, but these people who are labeled as alpha males crying as part of their process of getting to that point but and yet then we, we we turn around and say but but crying is bad that i think is a generation following us almost because i'm trying to remember like my early early childhood you know through like the the early 90s and trying to think of public examples of of men crying and i'm drawing a blank the first thing that i remember seeing like in a really public forum and in a traditionally masculine sense with two dudes or with dudes kind of challenging that status quo was when the Lakers and the Pistons were in the NBA finals and Magic and Isaiah would kiss each other before the start of every game. And everybody was like, oh, well, if they're doing that, they must be having some kind of secret affair or like whatever. But that was the first time that I really saw traditional masculinity challenged in that way in a public facing forum. And obviously this is before social media and all that stuff. So it wasn't even really a huge discussion the way, <clears throat> excuse me, the way something like that would be if there was social media or if there had been social media in 1988 or 89 or whenever the hell that was. So it, it I don't even think it was common for people to, for athletes, 
to cry after winning a championship or, you know, when something really impactful happened to them in that sense. I think it was just like, dudes, don't shed tears. Yeah, it's interesting that you're describing that because I feel like I have a lot of those memories, but I think it's coming from the same place because I very much wanted examples that justified the fact that I felt like crying sometimes, you know? And I always thought to myself, like, well, it always seemed okay when I saw it with other people, but never felt okay when I did it. And That's interesting. I think, yeah, and I think that the, even with some of the examples we're using, I think the implicit bargain, if you will, is if you do things that are manly enough, you get a pass on certain things. Huh. So if you're Isaiah and Magic, if you're Clark Gillies, if you're Mike Tyson, Mark Messier is kind of broken down, Eric Lindros is broken down, like these, all these, as they're accepting their glory. And I remember them very, very much because I was always impressed with their ability to do that. I always saw it as a source of strength. In fact, I, the, the way that I explain it to people I work with is that there's like sort of toughness and being brave. And toughness is like how tough you are is how, how likely is it that something will get to you? And so the tougher you are, the less likely something will get to you. But being brave is once something gets to you, how strong are you with dealing with it? And to me, the, the crying to a certain extent always felt like it shifted into bravery because you, you're watching in real time somebody who was willing to, to go there, to go into the intensity of their emotion and wasn't sitting there, you know, questioning themselves, you know, certainly not questioning their man. I mean, maybe they were, but I, yeah, I, you know. I would actually almost challenge that because how many times do you see, or have you seen in the past men crying in public and then apologizing for it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get so emotional. No, 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 please. Let's, yeah. let's, get, let's get in it. Yeah. Who's it? So you feel like people have, have, have cried and then apologized? I, that is a, fam it, it sounds familiar to me. I could just totally be making that up. I, I feel Or projecting. Like... <laughs> exactly. No, but I mean, you know, obviously getting to the, back to the, the, the root of the issue. I've never understood you know, again, vulnerability and openness is, is the key to strength. And I've often talked with people about how the very thing that creates the weakness is by creating an artificial target of saying, well, certain emotions are not okay. Right. It's like not having heart rate variability. <laughs> One of the reasons why depression causes heart, you know, causes heart attacks, people think is because it reduces heart rate variability. So your body is now not able to adjust to, to deal with whatever stress you have. Sure. And to me, limiting emotions is kind of like that. I don't really see any particular strength in saying like, well, you can't panic, you can't get depressed, you can't get angry. Because what if the situation calls for that? You know, Those are normal human emotions. It, <laughs> it, Obviously, there are centuries and centuries of conditioning that tell men that it is not necessarily okay to exhibit those emotions, but those are natural fucking emotions. Like, you, I, those are emotions I go through in a week. Like, 
<laughs> you know, in a, in a day, in right? The, yes. in the same conversation. Yes, exactly. To repress those or to to try to inhibit those in some way just feels contrary to life, to living. You, know, you can't just, live a full life unless you feel those emotions. Just to clarify, I usually go from panic to anger to depression, and I've really been working out the point where I can go through all three in thirty seconds. So. <laughs> Anyone who can't cycle through them, like, you know, in a short period of time, those are the ones that really have weakness. You know? And I, I feel like I go from, from panic to anxiety to, and there's a variety of the, the emotions that can follow the anxiety. It depends on what the situation is that throws me into the panic. And, and the evidence that we have on the damage that avoidance and suppression does, I mean, there are people who basically think that all mental health issues are are predicated on avoidance you know that's the the you know the trans diagnostic if, if you will factor that binds all mental health issues exactly <laughs> i don't think i came up with it but it does sound cool <laughs> trans diagnostic like the interpersonal yes. circumplex that was also a really oh cool my god i know yeah. i got throwing dollar like, bills at my you. dissertation was in, uh, the interpersonal circumplex i was like yeah that's right Right. I, I talk about that. So it sounds like a sci-fi movie, doesn't it? <laughs> one that I would, one that I would watch. The interpersonal <laughs> circumplex versus the transdiagnostic theory. <laughs> Kong versus Godzilla. Oh gosh. Yeah, you know it's it's, but it's it's amazing because by definition, our entire view of masculinity is based on a model that if I had to say, well, like I would like to, I would like to fuck you up emotionally that that's one of the main things i would do if i said all right let's just take this guy and let's just cut off a third of of the emotions as unacceptable and then put him through a regular life let alone a life where which i think we could talk about where facing various stressors various questions and 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 yeah i'll guarantee i'll get, I'll get a, a depressed anxious angry person indeed will spend the rest of their life chasing their tail because what do you do if you don't have language or understanding or acceptance of a huge swath of of the emotional spectrum I mean, it's a you're done it's crazy to me that we still have so far to go in terms of people understanding that theory and then normalizing it it, it's crazy that here in 2021, we're probably still talking about, even, let's just say America, there is probably more than half of Americans who feel that the more toxic variant of masculinity is like the way it should be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I just, the thing is that, you know, to me, it, it's kind of how I talk to people about drug use to an extent, which is one of the reverse things that happens. And I think this happens in, in therapeutic settings is there are some people who just aren't as wired to be in touch with that. Yeah. And that also, I think is a little bit dangerous when, when people are made to feel less than, because it's like, doesn't this make you feel anything? Like that was one of my favorite, that was one of my favorite scenes in Dexter actually, when going to the, the real wellspring of all 
you know, emotional well-being. <laughs> it was when it was when when Dokes had like him up against the wall and was just like put his hand on his on his shoulder and being like, "Doesn't that make you feel anything, anything at all?" And I remember being like, "That's really not a cool thing to say to someone who's in the middle of grief." I mean, you know, he was obviously trying to figure out whether or not he was, as it turns out, a, you know, uh, the you know the Bay Harbor butcher. But you know, we we we, we that's Spo- that spoiler so- alert. Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that for anyone. But like, but it always strikes me. I think that that's, that's a part, that side is also problematic. But to me, I think it's similar. Like when people say like, you know, they smoke pot and it's like, is pot bad? And I think there's a lot of potential downside to pot. But the, but the fundamental question is how does it fit in your life? Does it fit as part of a functioning whole? You know, so if you're somebody who like, you know, gets up in the morning and you're go, 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 and you're working like 80 hours a week and you feel like you have a full life and pot is something that helps you wind it down a little bit. And for whatever reason, it's not interfering with your motivations. I don't know that I would recommend it, but the facts are the facts. I think that that's the way I would look at intense negative emotion. It's like, so here's a video of Mike Tyson crying. Well, he, as far as I could tell, that was the same video that, that 10 minutes later, he knocked somebody out in 30 <laughs> seconds. It's like, so, you know, I, that's so, so that system. We contain works. multitudes. Yeah. And in that, in that <laughs> context, you know, Clark, you know, Clark Gillies, like, you know, went on, you know, he's has many of these, you know, fights. He was able to go out there and, you know, defend his teammate, defend himself. And, you know, it's sort of like, so I, I think that I wish that when people were thinking about the concept of masculinity, they, they looked at it in the context of, well, what are the person's goals? Like, what are they trying to do in their life? And then say, okay, so is, is that helpful? And for some people it is, and some people it isn't, but it's, it's got to be okay for it to be okay for some people right. in order then for everybody to be able to function at their highest level. Right. I think it's, that's well said. Okay for some people some of the time. You can exist on on parallel axes, right? Like you can you can knock somebody the fuck out. I mean, not that I condone that unless it's in a professional boxing ring setting. And get upset and cry about things like they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, one might facilitate the other. The other, yeah. Because if you're able to understand and let go, obviously, I don't know what these people's specific process was, but I feel as though being able to understand and have a, a release of that emotion, I, I could very well see how that would be very adaptive for them being able to go into an athletic event, especially yeah. a, a stressful one, you know, but because can, you're not then carrying all that around. I can tie that to my childhood in some ways not to turn this into a therapy session because we're, I, we're talking Mike here. And, and yeah, <laughs> if it sounds therapeutic, then so be it. Cause I remember getting into fights and the emotion that would lead me to hit somebody would be the same emotion that would lead me to like burst into tears. It, it's the same build up, the same swell of, of emotion. So there's, there's actually not much difference between the two. It's the yeah. expulsion of, this energy. And you think to yourself, how many potentially violent encounters would be avoided 
taking it out of the athletic realm if the idea of just go into a room and cry and then like come back out and be friends right you know it's not like the fight actually resolves anything i think one thing that you could argue is that in the same way as in an athletic event people are like you know really hurting each other but then kind of come out sort of seemingly you know friends at, at the end to some degree it's because you just shared in this really intense cathartic experience that quite frankly you're the only two people who really get it like you were the only two people who were in that moment who were right. in that fight who had all these people like maybe screaming around you and and you now have a bond that is is very powerful which is kind of an odd thing but if you think of it from the perspective of what you just said it's actually not that because if two people just got together and they like just sort of cried together about whatever was bothering them you might wonder whether or not there would be a similar kind of bond it's like wow we just did you know we just shared something that was kind of between us you know i don't know that would That's, that would violate a lot of norms of, of yes yeah culture. i mean i don't know how comfortable I, I i would be having a crying session in a room with somebody but <laughs> i i so, you yeah. know i can think of dudes that i've gotten into fights with and the fight's over and then three days later like your homeboys again and it, it it's this cycle of like a love hate thing where it's like you hang out and then you have a disagreement and you thump each other and then you you're cool again, like three days later. It, it's it, it very weird, but it, you're right. There's sort of like a primal catharsis in there somewhere. Yeah, it's it's interesting because with a couple of exceptions, almost every violent incident I've ever had has been in the context of of an athletic event, and so it's it's weird because I go in with all of that intensity, but there's this like sort of respect for the person on the right. other side that just kind of goes all the way through. So I, I sort of feel like those interactions feel very bonding to me, but that I think in part is because they very rarely happened in a situation in which it was not necessarily like agreed upon that, that we're going to do this. And there's a purpose to it, which is in theory, it, it, it some kind of competition to, you know, to elevate. You know, and I think that that's, you know, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this, but that's one of the things that I feel like is particularly toxic in terms of masculinity is the, is the idea that your elevation is at someone else's expense. I love the idea of going into something where whoever quote unquote wins, there's an acknowledgement that like both people were elevated just by being willing to push themselves. Right. But the idea that it's like, well, I won, you lost, you're a loser has never really made sense to me because I just always had such a profound respect for anyone who was willing to put themselves in that situation, especially at the risk of losing. I felt like that was like even a more brave thing. If I would see people who would go into either athletic things or even more violent confrontations outside of that, and they were willing to put themselves on the line, I was like, God. So like anyone would be like, oh, you lost, you lost. I'd be like, God, I, I feel like I lost by sitting on the sidelines. You know? <laughs> See, this is why you're a psychologist and I'm just like a regular dude. Because I, I, one thing that I- I'm, I'm going I'm to contend that one. Like, <laughs> I'll let one, that slip for now, but we'll, we'll move back to that. One quality I have that, and I'm not sure if, and this can be a good quality sometimes and it can be a bad quality sometimes, is in a competitive 
structure in a competitive arena, I feel the need to vanquish, hmm. like extinguish, exterminate. I am, I, I am a Neo before Zod. I am a very competitive person, and I do not take losing well. That's um, so interesting. Yeah. I, if you've ever, anyone who's ever played basketball against me knows this firsthand. Like I am a sore, sore fucking loser. Now I'm very curious because, because just for full disclosure, I, I am exactly the opposite. To me, someone walking away feeling vanquished would be worse than me walking away having lost. Wow. I would feel badly seeing somebody feel badly at my expense i mean you know maybe like a little bit like in a fun game like you play basketball you're like like trash talking for a little bit but any but but there's been a couple of times where i've like said stuff to people where i was like whoa whoa, whoa that 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 no like that, that crossed that crossed the line and i i still remember it 20 years later but it's very interesting so i am very very curious about that because i would not have guessed that when i tell this to people most people that know me are just kind of like that doesn't seem like you but it i turn into a different person in competitive situations and even in like regular life there's a part of me that looks at someone who does the same things i do and i'm like oh i can do this better than them now i internalize that and i generally don't make that an obvious point of contention because I'm, you know, a pretty self-aware, intelligent person, but that does come out in, in athletic situations. And when I'm playing, if I'm playing trivia or if I'm playing poker, I mean, my, that's a family thing. We flipped over tables and all that kind of stuff before, because I think we just as a whole are very competitive people, but there's a very male desire to win. And the one thing I will say is that I, for whatever reason, I won't cheat to win, but I will, at all other costs, I will try to win. Yeah, trying to break that down in the light of day, what is so important about that? I, I wonder about that. I have, for some reason, little brother syndrome, which is weird because I'm the oldest of my siblings. I always feel the need to prove myself, and I, I very often feel like I'm not taken seriously for some reason or another. So I, I feel like I have to go the extra mile to show you that I'm capable or viable or working hard or whatever it is. Like, mm -hmm. I need to pull out the stops. And that, I think, has just sort of manifested itself into this competitive way of being. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept because one of the one of the problems with it is the it's it's a it's a rigged game, not necessarily in terms of you will lose per se, but even if you win, you live in constant fear of losing. And that's that's like the power of a, of a social construct, you know, that like this idea that like okay, you have to you have to win in order to be taken seriously and it's like fuck like because that means at any moment if you lose you're no longer taken seriously right right it's like a sopranos thing like you're only as good as your last envelope right yeah that's been an ongoing thing with me you know between the competitive instinct and just the 
desire, the constant feeling that I'm not taking taken seriously and the desire to be taken seriously, that, you know, that fucks with my head quite a bit. Yeah. You know, the desire to feel valid. Ooh. Let's talk about that one. Because it's interesting that you that you say that. Because I'll tell you an interesting, interesting thing related to that. Like when I'm watching like my son play Little League through the years, if the pitcher throws the ball over the plate, if the ball is hit, if it's fielded and it's thrown to first and the first baseman catches it, everybody erupts. And they're all saying the same thing. This is real baseball. That was real baseball. Like, so a coach on another team a couple of weeks ago was like, yelled at his place. He's like, that was so baseball-y of you. You know, (laughs) it's this, you know, like it's, it's this constant, it's almost like a Manhattan apartment. Like people think like, oh, Manhattan's like, you're trying to make money so that you can have these like lavish things, but it's, it's all basically so that you can feel like you're living in a quote unquote, you know, acceptable, like, or a valid living situation. Right. You know, Ooh, I've got a bedroom, you know, like I got a kitchen, my bathroom's not in the kitchen, you know? And that concept of like, like it's valid is so powerful. So I am kind of curious where, for lack of better saying it, did, did, did your validity come into question or was your validity called into question? I I can't, pinpoint whether it has actually been called into question. I feel as though it gets called into question on occasion. I think some of it has to do with being a a Black person that lives in a lot of non-Black spaces. I think some of it is just, you know, is being a queer guy and having my masculinity questioned. I think some of it is not being, you know, not having a degree and having my intelligence questioned. I, I feel like I like I don't have these bona fides that I feel like establish me as someone who knows shit with the exception of life experience, which I'm now willing to like lord over everybody. Like I'm old, I know shit, but I always feel like, I feel like the little brother, like the, the person that has to speak twice as loud to get heard, heard half as much. And you know, you're talking about you know, that concept of how does privilege manifest? Because I think part of the reason why there's such a disconnect on the damage of, of, you know, of a privileged system one way or another is that people who don't know what it's like to wake up in the morning and feel like their basic validity is questioned wouldn't then understand how, you know, it's like, what, 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 you know, you're looking for a home, just go, go to a real estate broker and, and get a home and the the idea that that broker may not show you the same things that they would show somebody else like you can't understand that if every time you've gone to a broker they've welcomed you with open arms right i mean and you, you know? can make that you can turn that from a literal thing into a figurative thing like you're always looking for a home and you know not to sort of jump all over the place but one thing that i've very rarely felt is that i belonged anywhere because you know, even when I'm in, you know, if I'm around, there are times when I've been around other black people and they're like, well, you're not black enough. And, you know, there are times when I'm around other, you know, non-heterosexual men, it's like, well, you're not gay enough. It's kind of like, well, wh- where the fuck am I? And I think there, 
you know, I'm my journey into self-acceptance is is ongoing. And I think I'm a lot more comfortable being the outlier than I've ever been. But a lot of times it sucks to be the outlier because, you know, there's not a place where you fit neatly. I think that contributes to just feeling like, you know, the overall feeling like I need to be taken seriously because going back to the fighting stuff, if I get into a fight, who ha- I don't know who has my back. So yeah. I feel like I'm kind of, uh, you know, out in the world fending for myself alone. Yeah. And it's a, we have your back concept that that can get so the depth of it you know because again i think a lot of people especially people who in theory have privilege don't recognize how many things they have having their back right you know what i mean like the idea of there's you know there's a you know there's a media system there's a justice system there's there's financial networking you know, there's family thing, depending on which vertical we're talking about here, but whether or not you're talking about race, you're talking about gender, sexuality, these are, these are all things that, you know, for generations, not having, you know, there's, there's risk of loss of life, there's risk of loss of health, there's risk of not being able to establish financially. And, you know, it, it's wonderful for the people who have been able to do it through all of that, but that doesn't, that doesn't minimize like the way things are rigged, at least from my perspective. And I think that's also a huge challenge for people is they have trouble understanding, well, you know, like here, you seem to be doing okay. Therefore there's no problem. And it's kind of like, well, God, that's, that gets back to the whole, you don't want to look at one third of the emotional palette, if you will. Because if, if someone breaks out of a prison and runs a thousand miles and then like gets somewhere, it doesn't mean like you're doing okay. Right. You're here. You're all right. You you're all right. We're good. So let's, yeah. let's, let's, have a, like, let's now have a race. What's the journey and what did that journey do to you? Yeah. I think that also understanding more about things like generational trauma and, and you know, you know DNA and, and all of the things that that go along with that. I think we're, we're now that, that concept of how embedded it is for certain people to feel like, well, this is their place versus this is not their place. Just that basic sense of, of when you, you kind of wake up in the morning, it's like, you know, does all feel like home? Does it feel like my place? Am I supported here? You know, the illusion of feeling safe in the world at large just is not there for some people. And it is very present for some people, present so much that they never even need to think about feeling unsafe in the world. Whereas with a lot of people, there is the sense that the world is, you know, you you said the word rigging a little earlier, that, that, the, that the world is not in support of them. Yeah, you know, for reasons that are not in their control. And the thing is, it doesn't even let's let's like you know push aside all of the the studies we know of the objective disparities, right? Let's just for a moment, like even though that in and of itself is is the whole point, but let's just even say like let's take for a moment like that science that base of science away. Everybody knows what it's like to be in a room full of people where nobody's being quote unquote mean to you. I think it's somewhere between being ignored 
or like you're not getting any traction for responses and then it's kind of like yeah i don't i don't want to be here right it doesn't feel it doesn't feel good to be here like again is anyone saying to me hey you're a piece of shit or you don't have any value no but they're also not saying hey who are you what are you about right i want you i'm i'm glad you're here right if if people were just kind of take that how badly that feels and yeah it's great you can, you can go somewhere else and and hopefully find that but what if you know you go to 10 parties in a row and it all feels like that and you're not exactly sure why you know I mean, you start to you're you probably to not going to go to any more parties first of all yeah and and you're also going to wonder like what is it about you that causes this reaction in people every time you show up in a place yeah and when it's unsaid and it's not something that you did but something that you are especially when it's then i mean not that it would be better if it was acknowledged you know that but to some degree at least then you say okay at least i know what i'm dealing with here yeah i i would you know? almost rather it that way like if i if i pull up in front of a party and you know the party there's a sign on the party that says like black people go home i'm gonna go home and do something else that's fine i know i'm not welcome Whereas if I walk into a party or a meeting or something like that, and the there is no obvious message that I'm not welcome or that my my thoughts or my opinions aren't respected, but the vibe in the room is that my thoughts or opinions aren't respected, I'm going to be more pissed because it's like I thought I was entering a welcoming space. You may think this is a welcoming space, but it's not a welcoming space. Yeah, it was interesting. Lawrence Baca, who was, I think, I'm probably getting this wrong, but he was a, he was a, he was a civil rights attorney. I think the first, something like the first case that was brought in the Department of Justice protecting American Indian rights. But what he was saying, we were talking about uh, sort of American Indian team names and logos mm. and what it was like as an American Indian kid being at one of those schools and the way he described it was like, he's like, it's kind of like this. It's like you're walking down the hall and someone taps you from behind. You look around, you're like, oh, that's, that's not some taps you again. You're like, hey, what was that? Third time, it's like, all right, this is sort of getting annoying. He's like, by the seventh or eighth time, you just want to punch someone just from like even walking up to you. All right. And I was like, that, that, that sounded right to me. That I liked that example because it's sort of, like, yeah, is there anything wrong? So, you know, it's like, like, what really happened? But walking down the hall with no one doing that and just being left alone, free to do what you want, feeling like you're not being fucked with is a very nice feeling. And the absence of that is an incredibly shitty feeling, you know? Right, right. And obviously it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But again, we're, we're just, we're moving away from just, just talking about the emotional component, not even all of the practical you know, disparities, it's, it's, and I forgot how we got on this topic. I mean, it's been a long winding road, Mike. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I can even tie it back and say, there are, like, I haven't gotten into a physical fight in 22, 23 years, probably. But I still feel the need to 
intellectually vanquish people or emotionally vanquish people that I, I you know, particularly like I, I think I have a little bit of a, of a persecution complex. And, you know, when I feel like somebody has done me wrong, it's like I set the phasers to stun and it's like I'm going to, you know, liquefy you. Like there's just that that winning at all costs thing. It's like before you get the best of me, I am going to like do everything within my power to disempower you. Yeah. And that's the, and again, you know, getting back to that fundamental concept of toxic masculinity, it, it, part of the problem is, is that if you, if you create a system in which emotions need to be vanquished, because that's really the the point, like vanquished all, vanquish all emotional weakness, then you get to be a man, you know, well, then naturally what falls from that is that you've got to vanquish anybody who you see as emotionally weak or somehow different, then you have to vanquish anyone who is threatening to make you seem weak mm-hmm. or not. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, we're all just out kind of waiting to vanquish each other. And then we have wars and it's sort of like, Hey, how can we have so many wars? <laughs> like, you know, and, but it's, but it's that system that's in place. You don't ever get out of it. There's no, no. There's no win here, you know, even like the, you know, these people we talked about, these great, you know, the greatest champions in history, the greatest military mights in history, there's a short shelf life, you know, and so it's it's like, we got to come up with something better than this as a way of, you know, getting everybody like, you know, functioning at the highest level. Yeah, I mean, you can win a fight, you can win a war, you can win a basketball game or a chess match, you can win a game of poker, you can't win life. Like there, there's no winner, there's no W or L or T in the column after after you die. We all have the same result eventually. So I, I, I think that having that competitive mindset and applying it to life is just maybe not not the most healthy. I, and, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on myself and I, even to that extent, there are times when I'm like, well, I'm I'm doing life better than this person who's, you know, got their head in their ass or whatever. Like, it, even that kind of turns into a competition a little bit, which makes me feel very uncomfortable. But, you know, there really is no winning. To me, the only way you can lose at life is to not, to not explore the fullness of yourself like to not to leave shit on the table when you're transitioning out yeah and that's that's the thing that that really sucks because it's like you know I, I say to people i work with all the time it's like the problem is maybe if you're lucky you'll know right when you're about to die whether or not you made the right decisions but quite frankly like you won't really know because your decisions might reverberate throughout history you know you think yeah. about people who are artists who you know, had no success. And then later on, you know, things are getting sold for millions of dollars. But the thing that, that you're talking about, this competitive thing, you know, one of the problems, and this, you know, part of this is toxic masculinity, but part of this is also, there, there's a reality, which is that, you know, you, you, you don't really know how the movie is supposed to end. So you don't, but every movie, like take, take like The Pursuit of Happiness, Right, which is a great movie. I, I, I think we've talked about this before, but if we haven't, like, 
I really, really not knowing him personally, I have a lot of respect for Will Smith for not just riding his like natural superhero like charisma and like you know just going out there and just making like a series of you know probably what would be like billion dollar movies where he's like this amazing action hero i, I would i would watch every one of them it's like right and and to make a movie like that with you know and he's he's kind of made a, a lot of them now but one of the things that was just so striking about it was that i don't know what the real story was but i mean th this this guy was not living his life the right way. Like he should not have been like running around with whatever that thing was that he was selling, you know, dropping. It's like, he, he should have just been like, look, maybe it's time I get a less exciting, but you know, kind of a little bit more of a steady paying job, right? In theory. And the very fact that he didn't do that for a long period of time is then what created the, the big success story, right? right? And so it's that question for all of us. It's like, you're saying like, well, I don't feel like I should be, I don't, I don't feel like I should vanquish, but like, what if, you know, 20 years from now, you know, like, you know, that I, I love the work that you do and respect the work that you do, but like, you know, what if this issue in mental health is like, not as, what if it gets vanquished a little bit because of what you did? Then the question is like, well, did you make the right choice by picking those battles and being super competitive about it? Do you look back and say like, well, I won, but I wish I hadn't spent my time. To it's like, there, there's no way, there's no way of knowing that. That is and true. The problem is like every movie that we watch involves people spending a significant amount of time doing something that in theory could be damaging to them. And yet they kind of keep at it and they eventually win. And it's like, how do you know how your story is supposed to end? Do you stick to your guns? Do you, you know, quote unquote, mellow out? I, I, I've never been able to really figure that out, quite frankly. I guess that's a question that we all have to answer individually. I mean, I, I, I didn't realize I had a voice until fairly recently. And now that I realize I have one, I intend to use it as, as much as I feel comfortable using it. But by the same token, I can't be mad at people who could have the same voice, but don't use it because maybe they have other walks to walk. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they're, you know, I, I'm not in anyone else's shoes. I'm only in Mike's shoes and I, I can only do the things that feel right to Mike or feel practical to me or, or whatever combination of that I'm, I'm cool with. But I, there is for me, the sense that I, you know, it's funny, like when I turned 40, I was like, oh shit, this is kind of bonus time because I wasn't expecting to be here and expecting to be as as not destitute as I as I was at, at that time. And it was like, okay, well, I spent so many years like waiting for this moment to come when I would be middle-aged and dead or middle-aged and broke or middle-aged and homeless or whatever. And I'm middle-aged with a full-time job in an apartment. And the world also conspired to really make things like racial injustice and mental health become top of mind topics. And I was like, well, maybe I take my experiences and do something with it, with this time that, you know, suddenly popped up for me. And, you know, maybe that'll make me feel a little better about myself and build up some karma points and, and 
you know, I, it, it was a weird sequence of events that led me to that conclusion. And maybe some people just won't get to that point. And there's nothing wrong with not getting to that point the same way. I, I, I guess there is something wrong with being a fatalist and, and, you know, maybe not projecting things for the long term. But here we are. Yeah, there are just these these assumptions that, again, talking about the concept of privilege or, you know, that people you know, even thinking, okay, before we even get to like, well, how will you be received at a party? It's like, are you going to be alive? Live, yeah. To, you know, and, and you know, when when that presumption is not based on anxiety, but it's based on just what you see in terms of discrepancies in life expectancy, et cetera, it's sort of like, okay, so how do you want me to plan for my future? Or like, yeah. why exactly? Like, it's like, it, it sounds like you're like, it sounds like you're making sense, but like, that's not the world that I live in. Yeah, you know? it was like, in my head, in my 20s, it was kind of like, fuck a 401k, like I'm, I'm going to become a victim of the system in some way, whether it's, you know, whether I get infected with HIV, or I get gay bashed somewhere, or a cop shoots me or another person shoots me or something like that. I, I didn't think there was a successful way to cross into middle age, yeah. which I, I think if you're if you're a, a, a straight white suburban guy or gal, there is the assumption like, oh, yeah, I'll turn 40. I'll turn 45. I'm planning for my kids and my grandkids and, and that kind of thing. And that planning far ahead type thing just did not register with me at all. Yeah. It's so hard, I think. You know, having come from that background, I remember the first time people would talk about what you're describing now and how kind of like mind blowing it was just because it just had never occurred to me as an example. Like I, I wish for the entire world to have the relationship with law enforcement that I've had. Like this morning I was out or yesterday I was walking early in the morning it was still kind of dark out i'm wearing a hoodie i walk by a cop car i'm like oh good cop car's here like you know hi right safe right and the idea of what it would feel like to walk by and even just for a moment let alone for an extended period of time feel as though this like something may happen here well, then you start looking backwards and you start saying like, okay, well, like, so I'm, I'm not going to go out of my house in the morning. I'm not going to go out of my house when it's dark. I'm not going to wear a hood. I'm not. So what do, what do I, I needed to kind of get out and like, and, and get some energy. I like, so wh what do I do with that? Yeah. What is that? What happens there? And the, the same thing with like the idea of not late, it's just, there's so many degrees of not understanding that perspective that it then you start to see like it can just become frustrating for people who've gone through it to be like like are you ever gonna are you ever really gonna understand is anyone really gonna understand it and it, then the worst you know all it requires is a little bit of empathy I, I may have told this story to you before when i used to run i would run early in the morning because the streets were empty and i liked running you know as soon as i got up 
And, you know, there's a big difference in it being six o'clock or 530 in the morning. You pass a police car and you wave or whatever it is. I pass a police car and I'm a black man jogging with like headphones in and my glasses are off so I can't see shit. And I'm like, if this motherfucker tells me to freeze or something like that, am I going to hear it? Am I going to see him? And what's going to happen as a result of this potential confrontation? And that's something that has to go through my mind every time I'm in this situation. Like, for everyone who sees a police car as a source of comfort, there's black or brown person, you know, or a queer person who sees a police car as a sign of very obvious discomfort. Because it doesn't mean that something's going to happen to make them feel safe. It's something that's going to happen to make them feel unsafe or targeted or threatened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's as simple as, as empathizing with, with viewpoints, or with experiences, empathizing with experiences that other people have. I think one of the things that's very tough, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, is that I also feel like there needs to be a healthy recognition of however much you may try to empathize, you can't really truly understand that perspective unless you've lived it. If you saw The Dark Knight, Yes, yeah. Where, uh, here's another spoiler, where, what's the guy's name who's playing Robin? Oh, God, I don't remember. That movie was so long ago. I don't it's remember. Anyway, but he was talking about, like, you know, kids' parents got killed, and they're like, you know, people understand. Everybody understands for a while. You know, and they, they want something to happen that can't happen. They want the, the, you know, the kid to not be angry anymore that they... They lost his parents. It's kind of like I, I I worry sometimes because I feel like the goal of empathy, I think for some people it's almost like weight management. Like, hey, here's a 20-week program. It's like, and then you're done. But it's like it's not. Like if you're gonna be empathic, you have to be open to the fact that you have to be empathic permanently because you're not gonna really ever understand where someone's coming from. And once you think you do, and then it's like, so can we move on now? That's when you're done. Right. I, I definitely feel like at different points, I've fallen into that trap where I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I understand. And someone will say to me, so I'm working like, yeah, you, no, you don't. Like, don't don't ever say to me, you understand. Say to me, I, I empathize. you're trying to understand. Right. I, I, I am. Yeah. Trying is a good. Yeah. That's actually yeah. A, a very good way to, to put it. I'm never going to understand what it's like to be a woman. I'm never going to understand what it's like to be trans. I'm never going to, I mean, I know what it's like to be a minority, obviously, but I may not know what it's like to be certain other kinds of ethnic mind. Like, I don't know what it's like to come from a not native English speaking country. So these are, are things that I empathize with that I have to put myself in someone else's shoes and imagine what it must be like for them. I think when it's a majority thing, like, we, as minorities, uh, have to assimilate to an extent into a straight white world. So it's easier for me to know what it is to be a white person or know what it is to be a straight person, because in order to get by, we have to kind of fit ourselves into the, this is the way, this is the world that we have to understand in order to get by than it is for it to go in the reverse. Yeah, and I think that to a certain degree, when, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think when we get to the point where understanding is a destination, 
rather than a process, we lose the biggest thing yeah. of empathy, which is that we're all kind of walking around in the world, approaching as much as we can being understood by other people, but there's only so much that that we really can be understood. And if at any point we're like, no, 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 you're understood. There's no period at the end of that sentence. It's an, yeah. it's an ongoing process, which again is something that I, I, I did not understand until somewhat recently. Like I, I grew up thinking like, oh shit, you become an adult. And when you become an adult, you know everything. And the amount of stuff that I've learned in, you know, just the last five years has been incredible. Like you got to open yourself up to learning and you have to open yourself up to the fact that the learning is not going to stop. It's going to be constant. Yeah. And then it gets back again to that one third that we were talking about that, that core of toxic masculinity, which is that you have to be open to the fact that you might be, whether intentionally or not doing something that's harmful to other people. Or just and wrong. Like you can be, you know, one major tenet, quote unquote, toxic masculinity is like, I'm always right. No, you're not always right. And it's okay to not be right. It's okay to apologize, to say something or do something wrong, acknowledge that you were wrong and apologize for it. And it's so interesting because again, getting back to this concept, you know, I don't know if this story is true, but I was, I speak again, speaking of sort of the alpha male type, you know, arguably greatest football player ever, Jerry Rice. I might, I might argue for Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> also, I have a home field bias there, yes. but whatever. But yes. certainly one of the greatest football players ever. You know, my understanding is that every week after a game, I don't know if it was Monday morning or whatever, he would always watch tapes. I might be totally butchering this. This, this may have been a story about someone else or like a non-existent story, but this is the story I heard. And that no matter how he did, he always would watch the tapes and look for things that he could improve on. And again, you know, it's like, that's the same process as someone who's kind of like, Hey, you know, this thing that you did really hurt my feelings. Oh, you know, because my goal is to be the best football player I can be. So of course I want to see if my feet were, were not positioned well, at the beginning of that play. Why? Right. Of course I would want to do it. If a coach tells me, of course I'd want to see that because that's going to make me a better player. If I want to be a better person, of course I want you to tell me that, you know, certain team names or logos are, are damaging because yeah. I want to be a better person. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do that. And it's, it's amazing again, you know, like all the places where we allow the process that, we, that needs to happen that's counter to toxic masculinity, you know, the crying, the, the being open to, to change, the like being open to actually bonding with other people. It's something that I, I find very, very fascinating that I notice is that when I was younger, in a kind of hetero world, you know, guys dating women, the term whipped would be thrown around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have used that term many times in you, my life. You, you will you will never hear a married guy, a guy who's married to a woman calling another guy who's married to a woman whipped. It's like it's completely like it's been eradicated from I don't know that it's been totally eradicated, Mike. I have, I have, never, I have heard it used recently. I have never ever I, I would I will then talk to whoever 
that person is because I will look them and right at actually the I have heard it used by a married woman in reference to a married man that I could imagine that's a whole that's that's an interesting thing which I we, we could get into but like as an example I feel and again maybe this is the world that I live in that there is an acceptance in that in order to be in a couple in a straight couple that you have to have a certain degree, you, you know, a lot of your things that you may think, oh, I'm this, whatever, have to be subordinated to the couple and therefore to the woman. And so there's all of this, like, again, here's another, another piece of toxic masculinity that's completely been eradicated in situations where someone is functioning in a healthy way, right? right. So in other words, whether it's like, you know, achieving at sports or achieving in interpersonal situations, all the things that we were taught about toxic masculinity have proven to not be helpful and actually be counterproductive. And yet we still don't go back and, and teach kids something or, or even as a society, like make it different. It's like, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Like how many times do we have to go through the same cycle before? One major thing is that we don't teach people interpersonal skills as, as they grow up and we don't teach people how to relationship. I mean, and, you know, the structure of relationships, whether they be romantic relationships or platonic close relationships, is all the same. They all require some level of compromise with the person that you are in the relationship with. And whatever level of compromise is cool with the people that are involved in a relationship is cool. I think that there's still a, a frame of thought that, you know, there's still the man makes the decisions kind of very patriarchal relationship model that a lot of straight couples and even a lot of gay couples follow. And I, I got to get into one of those. I got to talk to my wife about it. <laughs> and there's also sort but, of the, the trope, like the sitcom trope, right? The King of Queens trope of like the henpecked husband who thinks he knows everything, but the woman's really in charge kind of, kind of situation where it's kind of like the dumb alpha male. And I mean, the reality shouldn't be either one of those things. I mean, it should, it's it, like everything else, it should be evolving and it, you know, should involve compromise and honest communication. And, but it's it just, it's also just this for guys who are in relationships with women. It's, it's like, listen, listen to her. Like she's going to know how to make you better. You know, listen, to not necessarily, like, not well, necessarily, not necessarily, right, but, yeah. like, but, but, but the right, but the right person. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. it's it's very much I, I ascribe to the Beyonce upgrade model. Let's say you're right about it versus I'm right, but it you 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 get to the place by being open either way. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like you get to that place by just kind of asking yourself, it's like, what well, is my goal? Is my goal to be a better person? Is my goal to be a better partner? Is my goal to grow? And if the goal is to grow. The and, and and don't get me wrong, I I this is not something that comes easily from me. I am I am defensive as fuck. Like, but it's from being that way and seeing like it's just like you look back and you'd be like, holy shit! If you had just been able to take five minutes and 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 just think for a second and like be like, yeah, you know what, this hurts, but yeah, I I, I probably need to to change that. You avoid like so many problems, and I feel like you know like the in my early fifties and I'm just barely getting it. And I kind of wish I had gone back and been like taking that Jerry Rice model from the beginning. I think I would have been a better person, you know? Yeah. I, I, it, I mean, self-awareness is not automatic. 
in people. And it's something that some people never achieve, you know, and kudos to anybody who has achieved even like a modicum of, of, of self-awareness. Because once you can look at your own fuck-ups and your own qualities that need improving and focus on doing the man in the mirror thing, like if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change, then I feel like you're on the right track. As opposed to thinking you're perfect and you don't need to change or thinking you need to change and not knowing how to change. It's like, do, do the work. You know, and and the upgrade goes both ways. Like if you're, I think the best relationships are the ones where the people involved work to upgrade one another. Not not me. My wife was perfect when I met her. I was <laughs> when you said that, I literally stopped in terror. I was like, I need improving. Not my wife. I want to make uh, that very clear. Uh, every we but all need improving. No, it's 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 like, you know, it it's it's one of these things I think where. Yeah, you because know, and again, it's it's like all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's racism, heterosexism, like you know, it, it all starts with that fundamental. I am not going to accept a certain piece of reality. I, I got a, I got a buddy of mine who I think this was said publicly, but just in case it was not, I will, I will not say who it is. He comes from a libertarian background. He says that like rather than have all this regulation for the environment just say that any company that creates a toxic mess has to clean has to pay for it themselves to clean it up he's like done we'll, we'll eliminate all of the climate change issues right there because no company would like would want to take that risk they'd want to go into things that even if there was a problem the damage to the environment was minimal so it's like that that concept of like if you if you can just if you just have to own up to and be responsible for your mistakes, and that's an okay thing, you know, you think about how many things would get resolved from that. And again, it's almost like every time we learn that, there's like a doubling down. No, 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 no. What's really gonna make it is like you have to be extra tough. You know, and it's like, all right, you keep keep doing this, but like. It hasn't worked so far. Yeah, exactly. It's like if it hasn't worked up until now, maybe it's time to tweak things a little bit. Well, and it's right. And it's like, and and again, look at all these people we're talking about. All of these people who have in theory done these super like alpha male things all don't do it that way. Right. You know, all the ones that at least that we've mentioned so far, like they're all open to change. They're all open to crying, they're all open to whatever you do, to be open to adjust and, and change what you're doing. And they still work hard. Cause I think that's a big fear that everybody has. Like, oh, you know, if you're, if you're open and vulnerable and you're crying, it's like, well, then you're not gonna go out and really like work your ass off. It's like, uh, those things are You're doing work. Horrible. Opening yeah. yourself up is work. Even if it's work that you can't, like, I could hammer a nail into a wall and that's work, right? But I can also make improvements to myself as a human being. I can read books. I can experience other people. I can learn to empathize. I can work on that. And that work is equally as valid. Like in order for something to be a valid thing, it doesn't have to be tangible. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, and that, right. Because at the end of the day, there are certain things that are, are very tangible. Like even this thing we were saying about walking into a party. 
Yeah. It's very tangible when you're looking at someone and you know that it's more important to them to be good to you than it is to protect themselves. That is as that, that to me, that's as fucking tangible as it gets. And there is nothing specific about it, but you know, when you're in the presence of somebody who's like, I actually really want to know if I'm doing something that's creating a problem here. Right. Because, because for me, my selfish needs involve being a good person. Like, cause I, I, you know, if you even take the perspective that, you know, you're, everybody is, is inherently selfish. It's like, well, but, but having you in my life is an important selfish need. Being right. a good person is an important selfish, selfish need. Selfish need, yeah. So I really want to hear it. That that's tangible to me, and that takes you know. I think we would both agree that takes a lot of work to get into that place. I mean, I think we're all constantly working to stay in that place. I mean, um, we're not all. I mean, I wish more of us were working to stay in that place. But you know, people look at selfishness as a bad quality, and it can be. But anything can be a bad quality. There is a lot of value in being selfish. Being selfish does not mean that you're a bad person. Well, you know what it is also is that like when you're when you go into an interaction, you're going based on certain premises. So in other words, like if I call someone up and say, hey, do you want to do you want to hang out? You know, it's sort of like and they say, yes, I'm doing it based on the assumption that they want to because they actually want to. <laughs> and right. if they're not being if they're not being selfish enough to consider that, then we're going into that interaction in a very different in, in, from a very different place. And one, yeah, one place that, that it's not very it's not then very gratifying for me because who wants to be, you know, hanging out with someone who feels like they're just doing it out of bubble. Yeah. Right. And so I agree, like, you know, like taking care of yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually is in theory very selfish, but you know. I don't want to be in a, in a circumstance where like, if I say, Hey, like to you, like, let's go for a run. And you've got like a bad ankle and you're like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll go for a run with a bad ankle. Cause I don't care about my well being. And then like, you know, like then we can't go running. I mean, that's not, that's not better for me. Right. Right. You're absolutely right. I, I I've been that person trying to be less of that person, be a little bit more yes. good, more of the good kind of selfish. I, I have been there myself. Indeed. I think it's like people pleasing. It's kind of like, it's like you don't stop people pleasing because you come to some like epiphany or, you know, in, in the toxic masculinity world, you grow a spine or whatever. It's more just like at some point you're like, holy shit, I can't do this anymore. Man. I just, I just like, I can't make it work. It's like being in like, you know, like I'm going to law school and I'm like, I, I, I can't do it. Like, you know, like whatever whatever i thought i was gonna be able to do at, at some point you realize that the pleasing of people is hurting that the excessive people pleasing is actually doing you a disservice and doing the people that you're trying to please a disservice too i've definitely spent a lot of my life pleasing people or at least trying to please people only to feel bad on occasions when pleasing myself and pleasing others were not mutually exclusive I realize that it appears that I advocate for selfishness fairly often over the course of this podcast, and I absolutely do not mean for it to sound like I advocate solely disregarding the feelings of others to please yourself. However, I strongly advocate against pleasing others at the expense of pleasing yourself. In the end, if that's all you do, you end up pleasing no one because you won't be happy, 
and your loved ones won't be truly happy if you're not happy. I want to thank Dr. Mike Friedman for getting up really early on a Saturday morning and chatting with me. As a reminder, his podcast is called Hardcore Humanism, and you can find it just about everywhere podcasts can be located. You can also follow him on Twitter at Hardcore Humanism minus the E. So H-A-R-D-C-O-R Humanism. Thanks again, Dr. Mike. Appreciate you, bro. Thanks for listening to Detoxicity. The show is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. Calvin Williams wrote and performed the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, and Jacob Block designed the logo. The concept of this show was created by me with inspiration from Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. If you'd like to reach out to me to offer feedback, recommend a guest, or guest on the show yourself, feel free to reach out to me via socials. I'm DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. You can also email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, and take care of yourselves. Till next time, peace.